It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. officials predict that the United States involvement in the war in the Middle East, if Iran or Hezbollah joins the fight with Hamas, this as a hospital is bombed in Gaza. Let us start by number two, understanding the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, part one. Three, we have two America's teams in DFW. And is there anything better in sports than a bases-loaded jam with zero outs? It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to Wednesday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment. At Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on YouTube and follow me on X at Will Kane. You know, for years... For years, I pretty much tuned out the story of the strife in the Middle East. Israel-Palestine, Palestine-Israel, cycles of violence, fight after fight, a repetitive news cycle. It's hard to keep up. Couldn't keep up. After a while, you throw up your hands in defeat. I'll just keep up with today's current events. I don't have time. I can't look back to how this began in 2014 or 2006, or the 1990s, or the 1970s, the 1967 Yom Kippur War, the Six-Day War in 1967. I can't go back to 1948. I can't understand the depth of the differences between Muslims in the Middle East and Jews in Israel. How can one possibly, if they don't get a PhD, if they don't devote a lifetime to understanding this situation that has confounded administration after administration, Israeli administration, Palestinian leadership, the greater Middle East, the powers of the world, of the League of Nations following World War I, President Clinton, President Bush, every U.S. president who's tried to attempt some stab at peace in the Middle East, the Camp David Accords, the Oslo Accords. The Sykes-Picot Agreement. How can you possibly begin to understand the depth of the hatred, the depth of the violence, the depth of the political divide? And so you throw your hands up. I don't know. Not until you arrive at this moment where there's a headline blaring that U.S. troops stand at the ready to deploy to the Middle East. Do you begin to think, I can no longer, I can't keep my head in the sand, I can't not understand What's happening between Palestine and Israel? You know, everybody that looks at this does so warily as well, not just out of their own ignorance, but in today's cultural climate. Oh, I don't know. If you want to look into context, if you want to look into history, maybe you're an anti-Semite. If you want to boil it down to a battle of civilizations, maybe you're an Islamophobe. You are surrounded by people screaming into every ear. You are surrounded by people who are ready to attack you ad hominem, to impugn your motives, to lurk beneath the heart of man and find where you too have a black spot in the middle of your soul. 
It's also confusing. The basic facts, the history are contested. And if you take a a bad step, a misstep, oh, you've stepped on a landmine and you've been revealed. You too, like eons of history before you have been revealed as an anti-Semite or you too just want to launch the might of the American military once more on a small village of Muslims. It feels so impossible to understand. And you're so discouraged by propaganda. Speakers on every side who have already had their minds made up at a minimum, who are ready to spin the facts at a maximum. And this comes, of course, on the heels of an environment in the United States across the globe where we have been manipulated so blatantly so for five, ten years that we look at everything with cynicism, every speaker, every news story, every news agency, every news outlet, every Twitter feed. With not just skepticism, but cynicism. What are they trying to make me believe? What's true? What's false? Oh, but what is also morally true? I will not sit here today and tell you that I've managed to cut through all that. That I've managed to come to a place where I can tell you, after peering through history, exactly how this whole thing unfurled or how this whole thing started. I can't profess expertise. And I've struggled with that. I've thought about how do I present When I have a platform, who am I supposed to be? And I keep coming back to just who I know that I am. And I hope that I am for you, the listener to the Will Kane podcast. And that's someone who is open about their humility and striving to understand. I've read a lot. I've listened to remarkable podcasts. I've watched documentary. I've spoken to experts. Well, for 11 days straight. I've spoken to IDF special forces. I'm talking about the baddest of the badasses who kicked doors and understand the tactics of urban warfare. I've had people here this week on this podcast who've earned the Medal of Honor in Fallujah, Iraq, who've talked about the soul of man and what it means to kill and what will happen soon in Gaza. I've had a debate between those that disagree on the appropriate response from Israel and the appropriate response from the United States. I've talked to experts about the greater geopolitical chess match that involves Iran and Saudi Arabia and the United States. And I can tell you at the end of all that, I don't have answers. I don't have solutions. I might just have a little bit more understanding. I'm sympathetic to the fact that there are many of you out there who have more expertise than me. Those of you that are out there will hear me say things and hopefully not impugn my motives or certainly my soul, but impugn my knowledge and my understanding and my expertise. And I accept that. I willingly accept that. Will Kane podcast at Fox.com. All it can be as I think about this is someone who travels along with you who that I hope that you will trust is trying to get some understanding and trying to get to the truth. I consider this podcast now on this subject of Israel and Palestine, almost a series dating back two weeks. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that debate, listen to that geopolitical strategy conversation to listen to my 10 takeaways early in this conflict I'll continue to have debates where very little is had in the public sphere right here for you. I'll continue to listen to your feedback and I'll continue to try to study and understand. But I will tell you at the end of all this, that's all we will be able to do. Maybe that's all we can 
be expected to do is to scratch the surface of understanding at the end of it, at the end of this podcast, at the end of this conversation, at the end of all of this, I don't know that we will have solutions or at least not a pretty conclusion. Story number one, marching towards war at the doorstep of the United States. The headline reads from foxnews.com, Israeli official predicts U.S. involvement if Iran, Hezbollah join fighting with Hamas. Israelis, Israel's national security advisor on Tuesday predicted U.S. involvement in this escalating Israel-Hamas war if it is joined by Hezbollah or Iran. As a U.S. Navy carrier strike group positions itself in the eastern Mediterranean, the head of the National Security Council of Israel said, quote, He's making clear to our enemies, speaking of President Biden, that if they imagine taking part in the offensive against the citizens of Israel, there will be American involvement here. Israel will not be alone. A U.S. force is here and it is ready, he added, without elaborating, according to Reuters. It's true that so far the Pentagon says they have not sent any U.S. troops to be deployed and not have not signaled that U.S. troops would be sent into the battlefield. I take that piece of news with more than a grain of salt. There are something like 15, 22 U.S. hostages in Gaza. There are, I believe, something like 30 American citizens of those murdered in southern Israel. Where Americans are murdered and where Americans are held hostage, you can expect that American badasses will be ready to knock on a door. But while the Pentagon denies we yet have U.S. troops on the battlefield in Israel. On Monday, the U.S. Department of Defense issued a be-ready-to-deploy order for 2,000 troops. From FoxNews.com, it says, though the U.S. Department of Defense has said that no decision has been made to deploy any forces at this time. Top U.S. officials emphasize that these U.S. troops would be used in advisory roles and provide medical support for Israeli forces. President Joe Biden is preparing to visit the region as he and other world leaders work to prevent the war from spilling into a broader regional conflict. Let us hope that is the strategic goal and the competent potential outcome of a visit by President Joe Biden. There was a funny tweet put out that Joe Biden goes to the Middle East to participate in the opening ceremonies of World War Three. It certainly feels as though that kind of dark humor, you know, gallows humor, a joke on the way to the chair on death row is just a joke. But it feels as though we are marching towards World War Three. It always seems to spiral. That's the story of World War One. You know, an archduke of the Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian Empire visiting and taking place, taking part in a parade in Serbia is assassinated by a separatist group called the Black Hand. That moment of a Serbian separatist assassinating that one duke of the Austro-Hungarian Empire sets off a chain of reactions where allies and blocks all of a sudden are at a standoff. And the next thing you know, you've got the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire, the Ottoman Empire aligned in a world war set against the UK and France and Russia. 
that absolutely tears the world apart. And though it took some months for all of this to unfold, it's like one event inevitably led to another and no one, no cooler head, no diplomat could stop this chain reaction, this spiral of events. It's hard to forget that when you think about what's going on right now in the Middle East, where alliances and tensions have always sat like on top of a dynamite factory where the slightest spark could send the whole thing into a massive worldwide explosion. But there's also been times to be the optimist where cooler heads have prevailed, where we have avoided global annihilation. The United States and the Soviet Union sat at each other's with knives at each other's throats for more than half a century. And whether or not it was missiles going to Cuba or spy planes being shot down over Russia, we managed to not let one spark ignite a wildfire of nuclear holocaust. It's possible. We've pulled it off. But I'm not sure it's par for the course in history. I'm not sure the chain reaction is often interrupted. Of course, I wouldn't be sure, because when that chain reaction is interrupted, we often don't hear. It's lost to history. When wars are hard to forget and hard to hide. Apparently, they are also hard to avoid. And now we see this escalating. We see this escalating. Just yesterday, a hospital in Gaza exploded. A bomb or a missile went off, killing immediate reports suggesting something like 500 people. It is surprising you could get at a body count that quickly from a massive explosion inside of Gaza. It takes days. It takes weeks to come up with official death counts. I just saw that. In Maui, you saw that in Maui, where we initially started with thousands, and then it creeps down to 97, or whatever the latest numbers are, in Lahaina. How long did it take for us to figure out how many people were missing and how many people were dead at the World Trade Centers on 9-11? I don't know how they could possibly know there are already 500 dead from this bombing of a hospital. And that just highlights once again... That we are surrounded. We are surrounded by propaganda. The media in America immediately went with that it was an IDF airstrike on that hospital. That doesn't appear to be necessarily true. Then there's reports that it was a Hamas missile misfire. You know, essentially friendly fire that ended up landing on one of their own targets. Now reports suggest it was neither Hamas nor Israel, but instead it was a third group. The uh, Islamic Jihad terrorist group who set off a missile that destroyed a hospital in Gaza. I don't know. I don't know what's true. Like you, I'm just trying to sort it out. I'm trying to ask some questions because this feels like we're on the march. It feels like we are spiraling. It feels like the chain reaction has been set off. It feels like the dominoes are falling. And no matter how many pleasantries that are said, no matter how many nice lullabies are sung that this is not America's war, that Israel can handle this herself... It's hard to kind of see the firewall. It's hard to see the firewall where it doesn't add up to the involvement in the United States in a war where inevitably you will see Iran, when inevitably you would see other Arab powers, when inevitably you'll have the involvement of Russia, when inevitably it will involve then nuclear weapons. I don't think you have to go to the maximalist position. I don't think you have to set the chain reaction off to its final destination. But that is all sitting there. And I don't know the firewalls, except, except wisdom. It's the only firewall that we ever have. Wisdom. And look, I don't sit here as well as a peacenik who suggests there's not ever a purpose to war. 
I understand the, let me correct that. I do my best. I try to understand the nature of man, our instincts, our propensity for violence, our tribalism. I also have seen the best of humanity. And I think in that conversation with David Bellavia, the Medal of Honor recipient for his fight in Fallujah, I think in that conversation we actually revealed that those two things are inextricable. The beautiful parts and the darkness of man. They're right next to each other, perhaps inseparable. They're all in one heart. So I don't think you have to go to the maximalist position of we're on the edge of nuclear holocaust. And I don't think everybody should drive around their cars or if you're listening to me on your AirPods on an airplane. I don't think we have to drive around full of anxiety and fear. I don't think we should. That's not my takeaway. That's not how I feel. I I don't go to bed at night worried that my sons will soon be drafted as soon as they're eligible. That's just not how I'm wired. I'm just not a pessimist. I'm honestly not a worrier. And when things feel far away, it's easy to feel complacent, but they're not so far away. And instead of fear or anxiety, what has always been my salve is action. I remember my dad died when I was really young. I was 25 years old. And, you know, in the beautiful way that a small town in Texas responds when your family is met with tragedy, everyone turns out. Not just family, but friends, and not just friends, but neighbors, and not just neighbors, but in small-town America, the entire town, with a casserole, with a hug, with just community, people at your house, you know? I'm sure many of you listening have been through that, and they're just there. What are they doing at your house? doesn't matter. They're just there, because you don't need to be alone. They're just there because, well, we're all a member of this community. I remember... Some of my mother's friends concerned that I was angry. I don't know. Maybe it was the look on my face. Maybe it was the lack of emotion. But that's not how I work. I'm not trying to pretend like I'm some tragedy special forces guy that I immediately go into the zone and I'm cool and calm. It might be just a cope. But I don't feel in those initial moments of tragedy. And then people say, well, you're going to need to see a therapist and there's going to, this is all going to come crashing down on you at some moment. But I don't, at least that hasn't happened to my knowledge, but I don't in those moments think for me, my path to deal is emotion. It isn't through tears. It isn't through feeling. My cope isn't anxiety. It's, it's not fear. My cope is action. What needs to be done next? What funeral arrangements? What casket? What affairs? What will do we need to pour over? What needs to be done? What action? And of course, I'm not the American government. I don't have a job in terms of action. I'm just a guy like you, with you, whose action in these moments, when you sit at these precipices, when you sit at this tenuous moment, is to understand It's to seek resolve in the truth. And so that brings me to, at least for me, the necessity as we sit in this moment for potential U.S. involvement on a spiraling war in the Middle East to understand how this all began, to understand the history of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. We'll be right back with more of the Will Cain Podcast. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. 
Story number two. The history of the conflict between Israel and Palestine, part one. Let me begin again with just a bit of a preamble. I don't consider myself an expert. I'm not even sure that's what you come to me for. I consider myself someone who's invested, who's given some time, and does their best to go into a situation with an open mind to understand. Oh, of course, I have my biases. A friend of mine texted me the other day and said, do you like sports or politics better? I said sports. There's a lot of deep reasons beyond just bread and circus, beyond just entertainment and escapism. I love the communitarian nature of sports. I love the analogy that sports provides for testing yourself the best we can in civil society, for testing yourself in a way that is only revealed about who you are, answering that question, who you are. That a guy like David Bellavia, again, on Monday's episode of the Will Kane podcast, knows who has that wisdom. And the text of my wife after that conversation hadn't even been published yet. I said to my wife, I want my boys to listen to this conversation. And she said, I just listened to it. It's amazing. I'd never want my boys to be in war. And of course, I don't want my boys to be in war, but I want for them what I don't have and never will have. And that is that wisdom, that knowledge, not just of man, but of self. I don't know about myself what a man like David Bellavia knows, not just about man, but what he knows about himself. You know, all I want is to try to understand who we are, who I am, what we're doing here, what is our purpose. And I know that when I come to you today, I'm just a person like you who's trying to get some history, to find the beginning. So I thought what I'd do as I've gathered all this information is break this up into three parts. We won't do long one and a half hour, one hour conversations on the history of the Israel-Palestinian conflict. We're going to break it up into three parts. Today, I'm going to talk to you about essentially, essentially, 1880 through about 1920. What I'm going to talk to you about is the beginning of Zionism through the end of World War I with a quick, deeper dive into ancient history. Again, I'm always welcome to your feedback, Podcast at fox.com. And consider this like a Cliff's Notes of this history. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict for dummies of the Will Kane podcast. You can go deeper and you should go deeper if you want deeper understanding, if your curiosity demands. There are many great resources, obviously, ongoing treaties, books, written. I never know exactly who I can go to that doesn't already have their mind made up or who's not giving me one side of a conflict or who's not leading me in a certain direction. But there are many that I've found that I think have given me a well-rounded basis, skeleton framework for this history. One of those, even though he's been accused of being Islamophobic and or anti-Semitic, is Daryl Cooper of the Martyr Made podcast. Absolutely deep 30 hours of research, I think, very fairly, looking into the history of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Between that and the depth of reading that I've managed to try to cram in to try to understand this moment in time, here's what I would share about the beginnings of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Let's start with the concept of original history, of stolen land, of who belongs in the Holy Land. I reject the concept, as you know very well, I reject the concept of stolen land. I don't accept that it is a useful concept. None of us are born from the ether or grow from the ground like the grass. We are all the product of conquest, and conquest is the nature of humankind. We take game resources and land from fellow man to advance our tribe. 
That is what has been done from the beginning of history. It has been done violently. It has been done peacefully. It has been done deceptively. It has been done through diplomatic negotiations, through the man-made creation of state. But it has been done repetitively. The pilgrims took the land from the East Coast Indians. The pioneers took the land from the Plains Indians. The Plains Indians took the land from their ancestors and other tribes stood there in South Dakota before them. Those quote-unquote Native Americans took the land as they came over the Bering Straits and the land bridge from Asia. Every peoples took land from a previous people. I reject the idea and the concept of stolen land. So when we look back in history and say, who does this belong to? Does it belong to the Palestinians? Does it belong to the Jews? The truth is, it doesn't belong to anyone any more so than the winner of a war gets to write history. That's not to produce you or push you or inspire you into this nihilistic vision of the world of winner takes all. But it is a fact of history that really the rightful claimant to land is the winner of the battle for that land. Jews go back in the Middle East thousands and thousands of years. You know it from the Old Testament. You know it from your Bible. You have King Saul, King David. You have Jewish kingdoms that were situated in Canaan. You have Jewish, it would be hard to say, empires because of the scope and scale and geographic breadth of any particular tribal empire of that time. We're talking about thousands of years B.C. But Jewish history deep in the Middle East. Of course, you also had many other tribes. As time progressed, you had Christians and Druze and Arabs, all scattered throughout the land that is referred to as the Holy Land. All right there in a fairly small geographic area. Today encompasses modern Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt. But come the period of time right after the birth of Christ, the, Roma- the Romans Empire, which extended off... Pretty much over what Western civilization considers the known world at that time. The Romans had decided they'd had enough of the tribes of King David, the descendants of the tribes of King David, the Jews. The Romans had decided that there was enough difficulty administering law, there's difficulty in maintaining order, that they simply went in and destroyed Jerusalem. You know, a lot of this interaction between the Jews and the Romans is laid out for you in what is a really awesome television series called The Chosen. You can go back in that time, and it's well-acted, well-written. When It's really hard to go back on any particular piece of fiction, or dramatization, rather, and see quality storytelling where a modern human can project themselves into that time period. Because, I mean, you know, they wore different clothes, they spoke different languages, they wore different styles, they had different customs. It's just hard. It's hard to project yourself. It's hard to identify. That's what you need in a story. You need to see yourself. You need to see your story in someone else's story. But it's really well done, and it's brought up to standards where you, as a modern American, used to scrolling 30-second increments on TikTok or 90-minute movies on Netflix, will enjoy The Chosen. But the Romans go into Jerusalem and destroy the civilization of the Jews. Scatter them to the winds. Jews essentially, essentially, virtually run out of the Holy Land. And the Jewish diaspora is spread then 
for the next 2,000 years all across, not just Europe, because you had Jews in Iran, you still had some in the Middle East, but primarily throughout Europe. Jewish neighborhoods, ghettos, villages, populations living in Paris and London and Berlin. Of course, we're even predating those modern urban centers. We're talking about, you know, even predating Germany, the concept of the nation state of Germany or France. You're talking about tribes of Jews settling among tribes of Celts and tribes of, you know, Gaelics or Gaels and and the various Anglo-Saxon tribes of Germany, but as well, a lot, a lot settling in what we then later would come to call Russia. Jews all over that area. Still a very, very, very small population. Even today, you know, Jews make up only something like one or two percent of the total global. I think it's one percent of the total global population. But while Jews are spread out across that entire existence, that entire geographic landmass, they all had something ex- similar to experience, and that was anti-Semitism. Now, I don't have the expertise, the knowledge, or the time to explain the roots of anti-Semitism, but it clearly is a reality of history. Jews, in wherever they lived, in Germany or France or Russia, began to experience, or, or did experience, not began to, but experienced throughout millennia, what's called a pogrom. You know, pogroms were these moments where whatever tensions existed between tribal rivalries erupted into horrific spats of violence. If you were a Jewish family living in Russia and I don't know, you know, 1500, you know, it could in a moment's notice be the case that your neighbors and your police or whoever it is that lived in your society, all of a sudden before you know it, were turning on you and your wife was raped and your children were murdered and you had pogroms where thousands were killed, thousands in one, one setting, one civilizational setting, one village, one town, one area of Russia or Europe. And it was often conducted by Christians. It was, it was, it was uh, not at the hands of what we think of as a thousands of year old blood feud between Muslims and Jews. No, this was happening at the hands of Christians or pagans, but it was happening. No matter where you lived as a Jew, this was happening. Pogroms were a part of your life. And if you want to know, what, honestly, what a modern day, what a pogrom looked like, a modern day version of the pogrom is just exactly what happened in southern Israel. Just that type of barbarism, that type of random killing, that bloodlust, that a spilling over of just the base humanity. That's what it was. It was a pogrom. So Jews across essentially was, I say the globe, but the known world at that time of the globe of, you know, advanced civilization in the West, were experiencing that. And and they didn't just experience it a little. They experienced it for hundreds and thousands of years. And you can imagine how that would, was baked into their, their, not just their identity, but their DNA. Always wary, always aware, always fearful. Every time you locked your door, no matter what you did, no matter how you lived, skeptical, knowing what happened to your grandfather? What the stories you were told? What happened to the people that moved here from where they moved from? So by the time we get to the 1800s and the 1880s, there began to be a movement afoot in Europe called Zionism. Zionism was the idea the Jews would return to a safe place where they could live together in protection from these types of pogroms that were happening in places like Russia. And Zionism had 
many founders, but the main founder was a guy named Theodore Herzl. Now, Herzl was, um, I believe, a Hungarian. He was an Eastern European writer, journalist, and he began this idea. He really pioneered. He championed this idea that the Jews should find a place. And in the beginning, there was like little discussion about where should they go to the Americas? Should they go to Argentina? Should they section some cordon off some area of Russia? But I mean, there was almost sideshows because really, ultimately, everyone knew the historical claim. I mean, it's in it's in Jewish prayers. It's in song return to Jerusalem. So there was a connection, obviously, but there really had been no Jews. I mean, of any significance in in the Middle East by the time you get to the 1880s for 2000 years after the Romans ran the Jews out of Jerusalem. So the modern Zionist movement began in the 1880s, and it identified the Middle East or identified what would later be termed Israel as the place to begin a migration. And it wasn't like it happened, well, in the grand scope of history, it happened in the blink of an eye, but it didn't happen in the blink of an eye when we're just taking a scope of history from 1880 to present. It, it, it took years, and it wasn't necessarily a political movement in the beginning. What I mean, it wasn't like, we're going to move to the Middle East, we're going to set up a state, and we're going to call it Israel. It was actually just really the actual definition of colonization. We're going to go, we're going to live together, we're going to share our customs, we're going to protect one another, we're going to be together in a place of our ancestry. There's cultural Zionism, there's religious Zionism, and there's many other forms of Zionism, including political Zionism. But in the beginning, it wasn't really an overt idea to set up a state, to pursue political Zionism. Now, if you think about it, you know, I've talked about on this podcast, the idea of tribes, and I'm fascinated by the idea of tribes. It's the ultimate human survival mechanism. It's our base level of organization beyond the family. And it's, it's common to every culture. It's common to every human civilization. I mean, I'm Scotch Irish, you know, a lot of people in the South and Texas and places like that are, those are the people that pushed West in America. And, you know, my ancestors living in whatever it may have been, the highlands of Scotland or northern England or, you know, Ireland or northern Ireland, we had clans. You know, what was a clan but a tribe? Extended family that organized themselves in mechanisms of protection and societal organization. That's what Native American tribes were. And within those tribes, as exemplified best with Native Americans, you can develop different customs and languages and so forth. But human beings as tribal is in our DNA. Daryl Cooper in that podcast, it's called Fear and Loathing, the Modern Made podcast, the series is called Fear and Loathing, talks about the tribe is actually completely anachronistic to the nation state. Like tribe is in our blood. Tribe is in our DNA. Tribe is not hard to understand. But nations are an idea. There have been those you know, within conservative spheres who have said America is not just an idea, it's a people. And I'm sympathetic to that. I want to I, I want to think more about that because I, I reject the idea there's not a culture of America. But America is an idea like every nation's an idea. We're, it's all an idea. If you think about the idea of the nation state, whether we're talking about Israel or the United States or the United Kingdom or France or Germany, that's a relatively recent phenomenon in Houston history, human history. I mean, we're talking about 200-ish years I mean, there wasn't really even such a thing as Germany until the late 1880s or late, late 1800s. You know, it's a, it's a new phenomenon in human history to get us to buy into an idea of commonality for self-protection or defense or conquest for resources, whatever, for empire building. We just 
We didn't. We didn't organize ourselves in terms of nations. And that really wasn't the idea of the United States of America. You know, yes, we had a loose confederation where we were going to come together for common defense and a constitution consecrated all this, right? But we were going to be reductionist in terms of the normal development of human civilization. Not tribal, but smaller. States. Why? You have more influence on states. You have, you know, a greater voice in a legislature. And even from states, then you you empower even local municipalities, local governments. Why? Again, in turn, more power to honor the way you want to live, your community, your family, your clan, your tribe, your people want to live. That was the idea of the United States. Even this idea of the nation state of the United States really didn't take form until after the Civil War. And even then, at that, if you look at the late 1800s in the United States of America, it would resemble nothing, nothing like what you think of the United States of America today. That's really, when I say a modern creation, that's a creation... I'm sure World War I was a great leap forward in that, World War II yet another, and then it's off to the races after FDR and World War II, where we begin to replace our identity as Texans or Virginians with Americans. It's a blip on the radar of humanity, on the timeline of humanity. It's new. And anything that new, by the way, is worth asking, will it last? I definitely believe that. Like, don't take for granted. We're such prisoners of our moment and when we live. It's like everything that exists now, the future is only a bigger version of that, or it is exactly like it is today. It's the, it's the problem with climate change. It's the problem with climate change arguments. It's the problem with innovation. It's a problem with everything. You think that the future is some version of the present. But it's not. It can't be. It never has been. And in fact, if you want real wisdom on what the future looks like, look into the past. What lasted forever? And what lasted forever was tribes. And in this, you have got to take a moment. We all have to take a moment and say, look at the tribe of Judaism. Amazing. One percent of the global population scattered across the globe. Right. Believe it or not. Tribes disappear. Cultures, customs, peoples, religions disappear. Violence or assimilation just get lost to history. It happens all the time. All the time. We can find a peoples that are no longer with us today. Oh, they might be with us in genetic DNA as there was intermarriage or whatever it may be, but they're not with us today in any recognizable form to the people that existed that were a member of that tribe. And you got to give it to Judaism. Not only has it experienced like ridiculous amounts of persecution, over time. Why? I don't know. That's a different discussion worth its own historical deep dive. But ridiculous amounts of persecution scattered across the globe. And here's a fascinating note as well in that. Didn't even end up speaking a common language. Russian Jews spoke Russian. You know, London Jews spoke English. French Jews spoke French. German Jews spoke German. There was no common identifying language. Now, you think so today, Hebrew, but Hebrew was a dead language. Yes, read in prayers or read in books, but not used for common parlance. No, no like real usage of Hebrew to, to talk with one another. And yet here's this diaspora of Jews across the globe who decides we're going to create ultimately, ultimately a nation state of Israel. We're all going to come from across the globe. We don't speak the same language. We're all going to buy into this idea. We're going to set aside other tribal affiliations because look, Jews in London believed and bought in and assimilate them, British. You know, we're going to leave a lot of that behind. We're going to go and we are going to revive. This is so fascinating. They revived Hebrew, revived it. Go to Israel today. Well, speaking Hebrew, revived a language. This tribe of Judaism 
I mean, has stood time. You have to admire the resiliency of this tribe. And they go with this sense of belonging and they begin the process of moving into an area. At first, culturally, at first for self-protection, not necessarily for political Zionism, but ultimately as it evolves into buying into this idea of a nation that they would one day call Israel. Now, there were people in Palestine. There's a great debate today about who are Palestinians. There's no such thing as Palestinians. There's no such thing as a state of Palestine. And that's true in the great sense of like seeing the world with the geopolitical nation state prism. But that's not the way the world was. Again, that nation state identity is a historical blip on the radar. There's no such thing as, as, as Iraqis. There was no such thing as Jordanians. When the Jews in the 1880s began the process of Zionism and moving to the Middle East, who they encountered were Arabs. Now, there were others, again, very diverse community, Christians, but Christian Arabs. Arabs were and are the primary ethnic group of the Middle East. And Arabs, like Saudi Arabs, Iraqi Arabs, Jordanian Arabs, Syrian Arabs, Arabs lived in what we now know of as Palestine. They lived there. Now, they were, tri- they were tribal in that true sense of the word, tribal. I'm talking about small herders, farmers, Bedouins, low literacy rate, you know, according to Daryl Cooper, under 10%, you know, low, low levels of literacy, but they're still a people and there are people living there and they had been living there for hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands of years, they're living there. And now they're living amongst a bunch of new people who are colonizing the area. And listen, we want to think of this as like this. Islamic versus Judaism blood feud, but it really isn't the history that I understand. And I say this humbly. It isn't the history that I understand from my deep reading so far. This isn't necessarily, we all want to chalk up wars and violence and to, to, to religion. Religion is the source, you know, people, religion is the source. Not really. Not really. It wasn't like Muslims, and there was a lot of different kinds of Muslims at that time. There was Muslims in Turkey. There was Muslims in Arabia. There was Muslims in Persia. It wasn't just like Muslims, like everyone out, anyone non-Muslim, like you think of it a little bit like that today. And we're going to talk about why in further episodes of this historical analysis, this 101 of the conflict, this Cliff's Notes of history. No, this this is political. This was political. So in the 1880s, when the Jews start showing up in the Middle East, here's what you had geopolitically. You had the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was a Muslim empire, but it wasn't like what you think of today. It wasn't Iran. It wasn't Islamist. It wasn't fundamentalist. It was a Muslim empire based out of Turkey, led by Turks, Turkish, Ottoman Empire that extended all throughout the Middle East. Now, if you need to like Google a map, and I I don't mean to be patronizing, and I don't also want to take for granted. I talked to my wife about this. She's like, when you start talking about maps in conception and like you're listening on a podcast and there's nothing visual to help. She goes, it's like when I talk to you about dinner reservations, Will, like, which is a hundred percent true. Can we talk about dinner reservations over the next month? No. I mean, I will say yes, but in my heart, in my mind, I have 100% committed to no. Everything has turned to white noise. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Thursday, October 21st with the Royals. Absolutely. No, no problem. But I don't mean a word that came out of my mouth. I didn't hear any of it, not a word of it. And I will be surprised on that day when you tell me we have dinner reservations tonight. What? What are you talking about? 
you committed to this will. Remember when we were walking in and I told you about it? No, you've never told me about this. So my brain goes to white noise when I talk about dinner reservations with my wife. She said, when I try to start drawing mental maps in the, in the air to her through language, not through my eyes, through my ears, she says it all turns to white noise. So I don't mean to be patronizing if I do this, and I don't want to take for granted how you see this. But the Ottoman Empire, if you, if you can picture in your mind the eastern Mediterranean and Turkey on the north northern edge, it starts in Turkey. It wraps around. It covers all of that central area. I'm talking about, and I'm going to name countries here, and I'm going to do it somewhat geographically, right? It comes around. It encompasses Syria. It encompasses Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, Iraq. It it's, it's, it's Kuwait, it's down into Arabia, Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Oman, and it, and it extends even further east into Persia. And then it comes back around on the other side, around the southern Mediterranean. And the Ottoman Empire came along northern Africa, Egypt and Libya and all the way out there to to Algeria. I mean, it was huge. The Ottoman Empire was a global force for hundreds of years. But by the time you get to the 18, late 1800s, it's kind of getting a little bit decrepit. And people are starting to question it, not sure of its long-term stability, just like any empire. It's on its way down eventually. And then along comes World War I. Well, World War I is where now we begin to draw the lines of all the words we use today. All those countries I just named. The idea of Palestine. The germination of the idea of Israel. No one really talked about the concept of Jordan until after World War I. So here's what happened in World War I. The world is set on its axis. It's fighting. It is Germany and Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire who joined those axis powers against the UK and France and Russia. And that was truly a world war. We think of it on the fronts in Europe, but it was everywhere. It was in North Africa, just like World War II for that matter. But the English who had been on a colonial project for quite some time. And I'm going to take a quick diversion really quickly here to talk about colonization because it's a big part of this. People see the Jews and see Zionism as colonization. It is. People see the Brits going to India and to Africa and to the Americas as colonization. It is. And colonization, even if you did like a AI or chat GPT ask of colonization, is now Almost akin, not quite as bad, but like if slavery is a 10, colonization is now seen as properly as an eight. And I know that like if your kids are in school, they're probably taught colonization through a negative lens and colonization had a ton of negativity, horrible things done in the name of colonization. But colonization, Douglas Murray said this on our podcast, and, and I think we need to have deeper, more interesting conversations about the idea of colonization. Like... Douglas Murray said it was the ultimate and first anti-racist movement. Like it was the idea that, hey, just because you're a different culture, a different race, a different ethnicity doesn't mean you can't have the fruits of my culture. You can't participate in my values. You just got to learn them. Like the Brits show up to wherever they go and they're like, hey, we have modern medicine. We have longer lifespans. We have longevity. We have higher literacy rates. These are you know, universal goods, right? Wouldn't we all agree? And if you adopt a few of our customs, we're going to share these miracles with you and help your civilization. And so, of course, of course, the Brits always put themselves at the top of that hierarchy wherever they went. Of course they did. Tell me a civilization that didn't. Of course, the Brits 
were snobby and arrogant and, and, and racist in some ways of seeing themselves as better than, than everybody else. Tell me a civilization that didn't see themselves as superior to someone else. If you show me that civilization, I will show you a civilization that wasn't going to last for long because it would have subjected itself quickly to the superior alien civilization. So the Brits go along colonizing, and then when they do, in all of their arrogance, also start setting up what ultimately would be this tinderbox that is the Middle East. So the Brits go into World War I and they need help. They need to win. So they set the Arabs, the Saudi Arabs, what we now know of as Saudis. They were a tribe. They were a tribe. Set the Arabs against the Ottomans in the war. They set the Arabs fighting the Ottomans and the Egyptians, for that matter, fighting the Ottomans. But the deal that the English made with the Arabs was when we're done and we defeat Germany and the Axis, we'll carve up the Ottoman Empire and you will get your Arabian Kingdom. This is the stuff of a movie. You know, you've, you've heard of it. This is Lawrence of Arabia. Okay, T.E. Lawrence. He goes in, he helps create and organize these Arabian fighters to fight the Ottomans. And this is the promise the Brits have made to the Arabs. At the same time, the Zionist movement had already taken off, and it had been really um, gaining energy in England. There was a guy named uh, Chaim Weitzman who helped develop uh, a business that had the chemicals and the necessities for uh, English munitions in World War One. So the, the Brits were like highly indebted to this man and bought stuff off of him, and he was a Zionist. And so they made deals through Weitzman and others that, like, okay, at the end of this deal— you're going to help us. You're going to continue to support the war effort. And we are going to help you establish the Jewish state. And then they made a third deal with the French. Now, even though the English and the French were on the same side of World War I, you know, the long history of the Brits and the French. I mean, like, I mean, enemies, rivals, whatever. They were never, like, necessarily brothers. And the French had colonial interest in Northern Arabia. So now we're talking about, like, Syria. And the French had no interest in giving all this up to the Arabs, no interest in giving up their influence in, in colonial holdings in, the, in, in Arabia. And so the Brits said, OK, you'll continue to have influence over northern Arabia. They made all three of these promises, none of which could live with each other. I heard a historian say um, you could keep two, but not three of these promises. The Brits could honor two, but not all three of these promises. And the two that the Brits chose to honor was the promise to the French and the promise to the Zionists. The Brits made a deal with the French. It was called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where they drew a line in the sand. There's a book called A Line in the Sand. They literally drew a line in the sand. It has no geographic, it makes no sense geographically, no river, no mountains, no nothing. Just a line in the sand, cuts through ethnicities, cuts through tribes, cuts through religious affiliations, cuts through everything. Drew a line in the sand and said, everything north of this line, France, you get you get to establish influence and directorate over whatever these guys want, these Arabs want, they have to answer to you. And below, we will, the Brits will administer. And then, by the way, over there, we're going to over there in the in, in the West, up, up against the edge of the Mediterranean. We're going to give that to the Zionist in an agreement that was called the Balfour Agreement, which established the intergovernmental global legitimacy to the Zionist project as a political state. Those that were screwed in this line in the sand steel were the Arabs. And here's how that went down. The French created the nation state of Syria. 
Then they created the nation state of Lebanon, which was primarily at that time Christian. It is no longer. And then they carved out Jordan, what was called Transjordan, carved out Jordan. Now you got three countries, you know, which don't make any real sense geographically or tribally or amongst its peoples. And the Brits gave more control to the Arabs in their area where they made Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia. Now, that's the lay of the land at the end of World War One. That is the beginning of the creation in the Middle East of the nation state. Nation states which make no sense. Nation states which are run by kings. Nation states which are run by kings who answer to European colonial powers. Okay, we're going to jump forward in the next episode of the Will Kane podcast, but just as a quick teaser, you know what happens, right? I mean, you roughly know what happens. All of those kings and all of those puppets of the European colonials, they get overturned by military coups and military dictatorships. I, I give you Saddam Hussein in Iraq. I give you Bashar al-Assad, his father, the Assads in, in Syria. Um, you know, Jordan remained a kingdom, um, but you, you see the military dictatorships, the latest of which overthrow is in Iran later down the line in the 1970s, where you have an overthrow, a coup of the European supposed colonialist puppet kings of that time. But that's the lay of the land at the end of World War One. But in that process, what you have now, when it comes to this particular part of the world, Israel and Palestine, is a group of Arab people, tribal people who'd been in that area for millennia, now inside of an area where they outnumber Jews greatly, who are all of a sudden isolated from the rest of Arabia, all of a sudden now living in a land where people are immigrating to their land and at first saying, we just want to live, you know, culturally Zionist amongst you and beginning to now talk in more political terms. And you're starting to get confrontations beginning in the 1920s. Now you begin to get some of the more there had been violent confrontations before, but you start to see the ramp up to what will happen over the next 25, 30 years which is what we will cover in the next historical and do this in three parts. The second part we will cover 1920 to essentially 1948, the official creation of the state of Israel. And then our third part, we'll take that to present talking about the wars in the Middle East and the constant conflicts between Palestine, Palestine and Israel from 1948 forward. But that is the deep historical history that sets the foundation for not just the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but the concept of a state, of a nation, in a land full of tribes. The big takeaway, the understanding, I told you, the point of this, I think, is understanding. And I think that the understanding that I come away from this with is we as people, humanity, this doesn't endorse it. It doesn't say it's the way we should live, but it is part of our DNA. We are tribal. We organize tribes by family. We organize tribes by ethnicity. We organize tribes by religion. We evolved beyond that by buying into the concept of the nation state, which has a greater goal, a greater ideal. I think the most perfect example of that, the most successful example of that in human history is the United States of America. And that is why this country is so worthy to fight for. But amidst that environment, you have now a colonization effort evolving into a nation state with an isolated people who've lived there for millennia, who are being told, hey, these guys used to live here, so you guys need to acquiesce, and the beginning then of how that erupts into violent conflict. I'll leave you with this. 
because I believe this is such a unique experiment in human history, the United States of America, where we bought into what I think I really, truly do wise and reasoned and historically grounded ideals to buy into. We didn't just buy into any willy nilly crap about seeing ourselves through a class divide or some modern new ideology like communism. Like that's a modern thing they asked people to buy into and still do. They ask people to stop seeing themselves as tribes and begin to see themselves as classes. We're here. We ask people to buy into values and ideas. That's our common bind. Our culture, which is just an accumulation of values. Our ideas, our principles that were grounded in the roots of Western civilization. Judeo-Christian ethics. Enlightenment values. Greek philosophy. Not fly-by-the-night stuff. Stand the test of thousands of years of time. And we did, and we bought into it. So what I believe, what I believe, when we see red, white, and blue, why I have a problem when people kneel on a football field in front of that flag, why I say that the sins of our forebears are not what define us, but our ability to live up to these ideals. When I say all that, I, this is why this experiment is unique in human history. And for me, that's why I ask in any potential global conflict like we sit at now, and I want to understand, I come back to that understanding is rooted in protecting this unique little blip on the radar of civilization. This little blip on this small deviation from the base instinct of man. The United States of America. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. Story number three. Hey, it turns out we have two of America's teams in DFW. The Dallas Cowboys beat the Los Angeles Chargers on Monday Night Football, but it was really, honestly, a side dish for my sports consumption this week. I will say this about the Cowboys beating the Chargers. Two quick takeaways. I'm evolving into this confirmed position and evolving away from a previous confirmed position. I'm evolving into, one, Mike McCarthy is a bad coach. Okay, and it's grounded in two things. And I have been a McCarthy defender and supporter, and I'm not all the way out, but the door is beginning to shut. Mike McCarthy had eight seconds left in two timeouts. It took what appeared to be a timeout as the Cowboys sat at the end of the first half on about the 15 yard line. He took a timeout with eight seconds left, which gives you time to take a shot into the end zone for a touchdown. Okay, and then if you don't get it, or something bad happens, you have another timeout to call so you can get your field goal unit out there. It's bang, bang, you got to do it quick, but that's the way you play if you want to win the game. It appeared he called a timeout with eight seconds left. He apparently went to the referee and said, I meant to let that clock run down to three and then have my timeout taken. The refs obliged. The Cowboys kicked a field goal, never took a shot to the end zone, and went home at halftime with an extra timeout in their pocket. Smart thinking there, Mikey boy. Now we have four timeouts in the second half. Of course, you know that's not how it works. Timeouts don't roll over. You don't bank them. They're not like savings. You have to use all three in the first half or the second half, and they don't roll over to the next game. So he was too scared to take a shot into the end zone. Too scared to try to win the game. No, I'm good. Let the clock run down. We'll kick for three. Which brings me to the second takeaway a position I'm evolving away from. I've been very hard on and down on Dak, okay? And a lot of you are like, no, you haven't, Will. You're a complete homer, and you're in the tank. Well, as of late and as of recently, I've started to reconcile myself to the fact that he may not be the guy that takes us to the promised land, okay? 
after that beatdown by the 49ers. But there is a level or a, um, there is a reality in the middle. Dak is a really, really good quarterback. Dak's a top 10 quarterback. I'm sorry, but that is indisputable. That doesn't mean Dak is a quarterback that gets you to the Super Bowl. I'm still unconvinced. But if anyone ever pays attention to the numbers or watches a game, Dak was awesome against the Chargers. That's the truth. He takes too many sacks. I agree. I didn't say he's perfect. But Dak was awesome against the Chargers. And not for nothing, but the Philadelphia Eagles and their universally celebrated quarterback Jalen Hurts just lost to the New York Jets, which sent people on the pathway of going, look at all the quarterbacks that have lost to the New York Jets. Look at the defenses that have shut down the great quarterbacks of the NFL. And it's like all of them. But not Dak. Dak dominated the defense of the New York Jets. Now, yes, the defense scored touchdowns and all that, but Dak was awesome against the New York Jets. He was not good against the San Francisco 49ers. And I think, to tie these two points together, this offense by Mike McCarthy is putrid. It's trash. And it's not doing Dak any good service. What is the Cowboys' offense? What is it? What's the identity? They don't run the ball well. They don't take deep shots. It's like six-yard outs. Get the ball out quick, Dak. It's trash. Now, people say, oh, the West Coast offense takes time to adjust to. Always oh, better than the second year. And the Texas Coast offense under Mike. Look, man, he's been the coach for a while. I don't care if he's just been the offensive coordinator this year. This offense is garbage. And Dak deserves an excuse for having to operate in this offense. It doesn't make Dak, as I have often said, a top five quarterback. No, I don't think that he is. I'm not sure Dak is a Super Bowl-level quarterback. But I'm going to tell you this. Dak is damn good. He is a top 10 quarterback. And now to America's second team, the Texas Rangers. Is there anything better than playoff baseball? Is there anything better than bases loaded, no outs, jam, where you get out with zero? I'm telling you, the tension on a playoff pitch rivals playoff hockey. It's so awesome. It's been so long since I experienced it. I love it. I love it. This is amazing to see the Texas Rangers up 2-0 as this is published in the ALCS against the Houston Astros. And I got to tell you, I have missed playoff baseball. Now, you got to have a vested interest. You really do. You got to have a vested interest. You got to care. You can't watch two teams you don't care about, and I get that, but I care. I've cared since the 1980s. I've been there through Ruben Sierra and Juan Gonzalez and Rafael Palmero. I've been there through Josh Hamilton and the down years when we lost 94 games. I'm here now, and let me tell you something. As Max Scherzer takes the mound, I can't wait for the tension of every little play in playoff baseball. Why are the Rangers America's team? Easy. Because everybody hates the Astros. Everybody in America rooting for the Texas Rangers. That's going to do it for me today. I will see you again next time right here. Give me feedback. Will Kane Podcast at Fox.com. See you next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcast and Amazon Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.